Hey everyone, welcome to We're Watching Here. We're Watching Here. This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he is the Julia Roberts to my Bruce Willis. Perry Seibert. <laughs> I was curious where you were going to go with this one this week. I, that was good. I did not. There see were that literally one like a hundred people I could choose from. Exactly, exactly. I <laughs> might have gone. I might have gone with the the, the Roddy McDowell to my Andy McDowell. That might have been mine. <laughs> oh, that would be good too. Yes. Those are references to the fact that today it is a new year, but it's an old series. We are <laughs> going back into our Robert Altman marathon to talk about 1992's The Player. I'm really excited, but. More excited. More than that, I'm excited just to be back here recording this in a new year. How are you doing, Perry? How were your holidays? My holidays were excellent, Chris. Happy New Year to you and yours. Happy, Happy New, new year. year to everybody listening. Yes, yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful holiday season. I had a fabulous time uh, uh, doing all sorts of family things. It was great. That's great. Great. Um, yeah, we we did much the same. I mean, after Christmas, I think we sat around for so long um which was <laughs> nice because that last month had been such a whirlwind that i don't think i had like my wife bought me a robe for christmas this is totally totally a you know a discursion but uh i ne- i have never owned a robe in my life and it has revolutionized my sitting around game so much <laughs> um like it, it's great it's like i understand the dude so much better now good i'm i'm I, welcome to the dark side yeah it's nice it's the dark side it's nice yeah well we've had a while since we've recorded we've both seen a lot so we're gonna we're gonna do a little bit of a supersized what we're watching um perry why don't you kick us off i think you got some old stuff to talk about right i do um uh, an act of shameless self-promotion chris uh i was uh, honored to be uh, on cathode ray mission again uh, earlier this month to do a retrospective on the work of orson wells uh, and so i went through a lot of well stuff uh much of it for the first time in oh decades uh some for the first time uh and what i revisited that i had forgotten how great it is <laughs> and i wanted to talk about was actually chimes at midnight his his best shakespearean film one of the great shakespeare films ever made uh if you're unfamiliar with chimes at midnight it was wells's uh desire to play falstaff the great shakespearean character the uh roguish best pal of the uh the soon-to-be henry v uh and he uh, he's a wonderful tragic figure very funny larger than life you can see why wells was attracted to him and chimes at midnight is this brilliant cut and paste job of like four different shakespearean plays so that you get a story about falstaff <laughs> um uh, the sheer ego to do that is all Wells. And uh, the sheer talent that he pulled it all off is also all Wells. <laughs> um, it's the kind of film that if you tell me you don't like Shakespeare, that's fine. I understand that. But if you're willing to try and you think you don't like it, start here. This is a really impressive way to get into Shakespeare. Not that he skims on the language whatsoever, but it's a really, it's, 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 a, it's a really fun movie to watch. You could put, you could pause any single shot of any of the interiors of the castles, and it is a lesson on learning where light comes from in the frame. It's gorgeous to look at uh, in its very offhand way. It's not showy about it at all. Uh, I was, I forgot, or I was too young to appreciate how great Chimes at Midnight was when I first saw it back in college. So, uh, yes, if you have the Criterion channel, I highly recommend you fire up Chimes at Midnight. It was, it was the, the great, it was the nicest rediscovery of the last month for me. Fantastic. Uh, my personal favorite Orson Welles performance are the uh, champagne commercials he did. Um, th- those are, those are my favorite. I, I pull those up on YouTube way too often. Just the, <laughs> uh, the French. Okay. <laughs> it's uh, Wells. Wells was so many things. <laughs> Wells, Wells was gargant. Wells contained multitudes. <laughs> um, my pick is actually a newer movie, and it's a movie that you can stream right now on Mubi, but it's also, I think it's available for rent pretty easily on most places. And it is Park Chan-wook's decision to leave. Uh, have you seen this one? I haven't yet. I'm super eager to. I need, I need to. I, re- I really want to. I, I haven't actually seen a lot of Park Chan-wook movies. Uh, I saw Old Boy when that was in theaters. And it was one of those movies where I saw it, I admired it, 
I never wanted to see it again. Um, <laughs> and it, it kind of made me wary of revisiting him. So I, I had seen a lot of him, but I'd heard enough good things about Decision to Leave where I decided to give it a look. And it is a very, very good movie. Um, it is a police thriller about a detective who is investigating the death of a hiker. Uh, this takes place in Korea. And the main suspect in the case is the hiker's wife. And as often happens in these movies, the detective begins to fall for the, for the wife. Um, and things start twisting around from there. And this is very much, this is very vertigo inspired. Um, it, it, and it, it, it earns that, it earns that designation too, because this is one of the most gorgeous movies I saw from last okay. year. Um, plot wise, I don't know if I kept up with every twist and turn, and I don't really think you need to. A lot like many of these movies, this is a movie where there are emotional twists and turns, but it's not an emo overly emotional movie. Um, it's a love story where there is really no physical affection shown and no declarations of love, um, but it still manages to kind of kick you in the gut at the end. But just visually, I, this is such a gorgeous movie. I wish I had seen this on a big screen. The transitions, the uh, transitions between scenes here are so inventive. There is, there is one shot where it's a woman's arm laying on a bed and it transitions into an X-ray of a murder suspect. There is a point of view shot that takes place from a corpse on the ground as an ant scampers all over his eyeball. Um, it, it's just <laughs> a really beautiful film to watch. Um, but like, like Vertigo, it is not so much about the mystery. It is about the obsession. It is about the relationship between these two characters. Um, and their relationship's never really clear until the final moments of the movie when the, the film just kind of kicks you in the ribs and you don't even realize it's done that until it happens. Wow. And that is all I will say now. Um, it is a movie that uh, it's in strong contention for my best movies of 2022 list, uh, which I'm still finalizing. Um, but I highly recommend you seek it out. It is a, uh, a really stunning movie. And I really wish this had gotten a, a big theatrical release. I am eager. I will, I will absolutely be watching this before we talk next. I will have seen this. All right. It, it, it's good. Definitely worth your time. Um, and it's entertaining as hell. It, it is just, you know, it's a lot of fun to watch too. Good. Sounds great. Uh, speaking of fun to watch, or maybe we're not. Uh, we also <laughs> both saw one of the uh, one of the same big movies over the holiday break, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Perry, what did you think of Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery? Because I know we were a little split on the first Knives Out. I will say this is as a lead off. I have more to say, but I'll start with this. Mm -hmm. Um, I liked this better than Knives Out. Uh, I didn't love this, <laughs> but I liked it better than Knives Out. I, um, as I've grown along with him, I've learned that I have a Ryan Johnson problem. Okay. Uh, I, I find him too cute for his own good as a writer. Uh, and I think it's problematic. There are a couple of times he's gotten around it. Actually, one time he dove into it, which was The Brothers Bloom, which is my favorite of his movies, actually. I think The Brothers Bloom is, is absolutely, The Brothers Bloom is <laughs> the best Wes Anderson knockoff I've ever seen. And I mean that as a compliment. There have been many of them. I mean that as a real and genuine compliment. I think it is, I think it is a deeper film than Wes is, cap was, is usually capable of. So I, I like The Brothers Bloom a lot. Uh, it helps to have Adrian Brody and Mark Ruffalo on board. Uh, and I also actually, uh, since I don't love the Star Wars universe, I love The Last Jedi. <laughs> love The Last Jedi. I, okay. So these are my favorite Ryan Johnson films. Um, the, uh, my problem with Ryan Johnson is he is so locked into being clever and letter perfect that I think it it, it is overwhelming that then he also wants to be so visually perfect. It's just, it's exhausting. It's I, I zone out at all of his films by about the halfway point because I don't care anymore. Just end it. Just wrap it up. I'm not enjoying any of this. Yes, I appreciate how clever you are. I get it. I don't think you care. I think you want to create this perfect little curio every time out. Um, this, this held my interest longer than Knives Out did. And I like it. I, I don't mean to imply that I dislike this film. I like this movie. I would give it. A, I, would, I would absolutely give it the, the you know the pleasant three star review. I, Gla uh, Glass Onion is is a lot of fun. 
I, I, it helps that that cast helps a whole lot. Yes. <laughs> that cast helps a whole lot, uh, way more than the cast of Knives Out did. And that's because I think everybody's written better. I think there's more stuff going on between everybody than there is in Knives Out. Knives Out felt very beholden to me in a way that limited it to the straight up Agatha Christie format. And this felt, uh, this felt like it had a wider lens. And I also kind of, I kind of like the theme in this better than the theme in Knives Out. I, I thought that was a richer way to go. I'm trying not to spoil it for anyone who actually hasn't watched this yet, but who hasn't seen this, who's wanted to by now, right? Yeah, it's been a big hit. Yeah, I, I've gabbed enough, Chris. What was your, how was your time with Glass Onion? Um, this was literally, as soon as I closed my laptop from work uh, to start the holidays, I closed my laptop, went away, had lunch, came back, opened my laptop and watched Glass Onion. <laughs> I was looking forward to it that much because I, I love the first one. I don't, I don't know if they're great movies, um, but they are really right in my sweet spot. Um, I, I had a lot of fun with Knives Out. I think I like this one more. Um, I, and I think I just like the the humor is a little bit better in this and fits the kind of the fun bonkers tone of it a little bit better. I, I just I had a much better time with this cast like Dave Bautista just always I, I'm always delighted when Dave Bautista shows up in a movie. Um, Ed Norton, who is an actor who I haven't seen do a ton that's impressed me in the last few years, which is shocking because I love Ed Norton in his prime. Um, I think he is having more fun than I've seen him have in a long time. Mm-hmm. It might be the most engaged I've been in a Kate Hudson role since Almost <laughs> Famous, uh, which <laughs> was her debut. So or, yeah, you know, the, the thing that brought her to attention. Um, so I, ha- I had a really good time with this. I loved the construction of the mystery. Um, I love that Ryan Johnson kind of gets ahead of his audience or at least dumb audience members like me. Um, because there was a portion, part of me watching this movie, the first hour and a half, feeling like something was off, feeling like something about the Daniel Craig character was just a little off from what I liked the last time. He was a little too cartoony, a little too broad. Something just wasn't working for me. And then they do a big reveal that clicked everything into place. And I just, I laughed so hard. Um, I I thought just some of the lines, um, you know, it, Benoit Blanc telling uh, Kate Hudson's character, you know, to speak without to speak without thinking and consider it truth is a very dangerous thing. And her only takeaways, <laughs> oh, you think I'm dangerous? Um, <laughs> every single thing that Ed Norton says, um, the the big all so Elon Musk of it, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I just I had a great time with it. I made my wife watch it a week later. Like we're sitting around one Thursday night and kids are in bed. We didn't have to be at work. So I'm like, oh, we're going to watch Glass Onion tonight. On second viewing, I, I appreciated its structure a lot. But when you kind of know where it's going, it does take a little of the oxygen out of the room. But uh, no, I had a great time with this one. Good. It's it's thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah, I'm, it's you know, it's 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 it's, it's good. I just... <laughs> It's good. I, 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 I know that seems like just damning with faint praise. I don't mean for it to be, but I can't say that about a lot of movies. It's good. I will say it, it is in contention for my top 10 list, which I'm going back and forth on right now. Gotcha. And the thing that holds it back for me is I almost feel like. It's okay. Sorry. That's my mistake. That's okay. It's. It's almost in my top 10 list and I keep going back and forth with it because I feel like I want to ding it for being too fun. Like there's that weird thing where I feel like I can't have a movie on there just because I had fun with it so much. But uh, I don't know. It it might still because I keep coming back to it. I had a great time with it. But um, don't discount fun. (laughs) Don't don't ever discount fun (laughs) when you're making your top 10 list. Fun is good. Um, I'm going to also just mention real quick, it's not a full review or anything, but I did want to bring this up because I feel like we've talked about this before. Um, so I saw Avatar The Way of Water twice, um, which I'm guessing might be two more times than you saw it. It is two more uh, times than okay. I've seen it, yes. Okay, the only th- reason I want to bring it up, I really liked it. I, I'm just kind of in the bag for that. But I do want to say the second time I saw it was in high frame rate. Oh, God. And it might be the closest that format has ever come for working for me, while at the same time 
confirming why I don't think I like that format. <laughs> um, it it does this thing where it will alternate between 24 frames per second and 48 frames per second. Like sometimes within the space of a scene, it'll switch back and forth, which was really jarring. Um, the, the plus size was you didn't have to have all these conversation scenes where people are talking and it just looks like a soap opera. And I think with the action sequences, it actually looks really good. Like when it's focused on something that isn't really there, it kind of works. But whenever it switched to humans, it looks so fake. So it makes things that are obviously fake look more real. <laughs> I don't know. My brain doesn't work. This feels like the topic of a Ryan Johnson movie. This doesn't, this, I'm lost now. I, I just wait for it to circle back around on itself. It both worked for me and didn't. And what I thought was fascinating was talking to my son, who didn't even realize anything had changed. And I realized it's because he's playing video games where everything yeah. is 48 frames per second. And to him, it's just, oh, yeah, that's what things look like. For me, my brain is going back to, no, that looks like video. That looks like a soap yeah. opera. I don't want to have to ask the projectionist to turn off the motion smoothing. It's not what I want to have to do. Yeah, when I go to exactly. Movies. Yeah, I, I already have to do that when I go to my in-laws. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Every hotel room I stay in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so that was Glass Onion. Uh, that was Decision to Leave and Chimes at Midnight. And you can find those. All of them are uh, streaming somewhere. So that's that's good. But we're going to move on into our Robert Altman discussion uh, today. I, I've been very excited about this. Actually, since we started talking about Robert Altman, before we even started this series, when you started putting this together, I was like, yeah, but when do we get to the player? Because... I had heard this one discussed for so long uh, that this is a movie that I remember hearing about back when I was, you know, still a premiere reader uh, or an entertainment weekly reader getting like the physical copies. Like the player was mentioned all the time. It's like the, the best inside Hollywood movie ever made. So I was really excited to get to it. Um, and I was really excited, especially once we finished our, uh, our episode on 80s Altman, which we covered in one fell swoop with two movies, uh, which was Come Back to the Five and Dying Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, and Secret Honor, which really are smaller, more in, more stage-bound movies than we had seen from him. Um, so I was excited to get back to, uh, to kind of Robert Altman doing his Robert Altman thing with this. Um, Oh, I want you to keep talking now. After that lead in, <laughs> I want to know what your experience then with this is. Yeah. If you yeah, well, found okay. this and returned to real quick, How let me say, if I if I may, before we jump mm -hmm. right in, if you are interested in going deeper, I would uh, it is worth going through his 80 stuff for uh for Tanner 88, the series he did for HBO, which is uh very much a lead-in to what the 90s were going to look like for him and Vincent and Vincent and Teo his either the movie version or the television version they're both excellent um and they're both worth seeing uh, if for no other reason than that is where he starts working with uh Jean Lapine the cinematographer who who shoots the player with him uh which is a uh, the, the work of a very sympathetic cinematographer who knows what Altman was it wants to do I will, I will definitely have it because I feel like I'm going to go back and do a lot of catch-ups with this because I, I've yeah. enjoyed this series There's so much. Um, <laughs> and, and it's funny because I was looking forward to this, you know, after we looked at, which we liked Secret Honor. We liked- uh, Come I, love Secret Honor. Yeah, th <laughs> I love Secret Honor. I love Secret Honor. I don't mean to say like when it's, you know, Robert Altman's return, it is him making good movies again. Those, those are good movies. And um, I, I enjoyed them for what they are. You can listen to our episode. Um, but I really wanted to get back into him having a huge ensemble, having yes. this dialogue that is just bouncing back and forth over each other. And really the thing that I had taken away from all his 70s movies we've watched, these just layered real worlds that he creates and where the plot is almost secondary because you are just immersed <laughs> in, in these environments. Um, and... I, I honestly got to say, I, I like the player a lot. We're going to talk a lot about it. I feel like watching all those movies first, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, um, the, uh, why am I blanking on the uh, Elliot Gould? The Long Goodbye. Long Goodbye. Thank you. I always do that one. Uh, MASH, uh, Nashville, even Popeye. 
I, I felt like the thing I loved about those movies so much was that they were wor- windows into worlds that I I had no experience about. I knew nothing about, right? Like even, even his modern things back then uh, that took place like in the 70s, to me, it was like, wow, this is a whole other world because this is before I was born. Sorry, Perry. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. if there's one thing I that, that disappointed me about the player, it was like, oh, this is a familiar world. This is, you know, in 1992, we were, I was pretty familiar with, you know, the fact that Hollywood was all wheel make, you know, deal making and stabbing you in the back. Um, so I remember at first being kind of taken aback, like, oh, oh, this is gonna be something I know. But the way he uses what you know about Hollywood to really just sink his teeth, not only into Hollywood, but also just capitalism in general. Yes. Uh, makes it a really delightful movie. Um, <laughs> Full disclosure, there may be things I don't remember well, because when I was watching this, this might be too much information. I was preparing for a colonoscopy uh, <laughs> and, and it wasn't it wasn't what you think. It, none of the bad stuff started till later, but I was definitely on no food and Sprite all day. Uh, <laughs> so so my mind was wandering in and out. But uh, I I had a ball with this from the very first shot, the yes. very first eight minute shot yes um, which i love because it clues you in right away that you are watching a movie because they have the clapboard and everything Mm -hmm. and then it's this eight minute shot that is not so much giving you plot details but just letting you soak in this hollywood um where deals are happening all around you but it's referencing the fact that it's mimicking a tracking shot from another movie. Yes. At that moment, I was like, this is so playful and fun. I, I so curious to see where it goes. Good. That's what that shot is supposed to do. Most certainly. And it does give you some plot points (laughs) and you do meet everybody just Mm -hmm. about. There's only a couple of characters who you, you meet after that opening sequence, eight and a half minute shot. It's a great shot Um, that goes. And isn't just like one tracking shot where the camera's moving in one direction the whole time. No, it goes left and right up, down, over, through, around. (laughs) There's Jeremy Piven. Who'd have guessed? That's everything is in this shot. Yeah. Well, what it reminded me of that, of that I love so much is the way Altman just kind of observes in a lot of these movies. He he doesn't really, there, there are sequences where he will go for minutes without settling on one conversation, right? They're all happening around you. Yes. And you think back to McCabe and Mrs. Miller when there's that first scene in the tavern. And I remember like just, you don't really, like I, I remember being very confused as to what's going on in this scene. Why, what is this world? But you just kind of, soak it into you and suddenly by the time that scene is done you are part of this world you understand you know maybe not every nuance of what's going on but you you get the gist of it you you yes. feel like you're living here now um same thing with uh with long goodbye those those great long shots of elliot gould just walking across the street going to the grocery store getting cat food muttering to himself the whole time <laughs> boom you're in with this it is just you know stories of hollywood history going on we're Maybe they're getting it right. Maybe they're getting it wrong. People are making deals. Buck Henry's in there pitching a sequel to The Graduate, yes. um, which which is great because it felt like, oh, this is Hollywood of 1992. Yeah. We have not gotten better. <laughs> oh, yeah, we have. I would, I would argue we have. I would love for it to be 1992 again. I will take all of the nightmare oh. pitches in this film over the over the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No, 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 no. Anytime. <laughs> okay. No, what I'm saying is us in 2022 have not gotten better from 1992. We've gotcha. gotten worse. Gotcha. Um, Understand because, what you're saying now. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because you're seeing, oh, oh, they're <laughs> pitching a sequel to The Graduate. You you couldn't pitch a sequel to The Graduate today because that's based no. on a movie about normal people. Um, <laughs> and they, they already did a weird sequel to The Graduate like 10 they, or 20 years they ago. They did, yes. That required uh, two directors. Yes. Yeah. Spoiler alert for the end of the movie. You couldn't have Bruce Willis come in and save Julia Roberts <laughs> at the end of the movie. It would have to be John McClane coming in and saving Aaron Brockovich at the end of that movie. They would have, they would have to be that IP. 
So, and here's here's the weird thing for me seeing this again. And I this is a movie I can close my eyes and watch. I the player came out when I was a uh, freshman or sophomore in college. I saw it to death. It's one of the greatest laser discs I ever owned. I can't give it up. I still yes, I still have my laser disc of this. Um, it, it it and I have not watched it in probably a decade. So I was really excited to to check it out again and waited until really close to when we were going to record. I just watched it a couple of nights ago. Uh, And because I really wanted it fresh again. And it is what struck me is uh, I I still love it. I love it for all the reasons I've always loved it. It hasn't diminished. Uh, What struck me is uh, how many people have died. It's so and now it's it is it does have this sort of oh it's got a wistfulness to it that Altman did not intend because <laughs> that is that is that is a jet black script Michael Tolkien script it's adapted from his novel is just superb um, it is a film that is, uh, is angry and that's one of the reasons I really I like uh, I like making the distinction between those early seventies films that you were making earlier. I think this is a film that isn't about plopping you in and you learning this world. He's showing you this. He's making a point to show you this. There's a way he wants you to see this and take this in. It is very open. It does feel as if it, it contains a whole world because it is this microcosmos of the universe that he's created. But unlike those early films. <laughs> no no he's got a point of view about this world <laughs> he wants you to know that he doesn't like this that these are bad people that, that are running things um and that's that's not something he does throughout his 70s movies there's there is an angry point of view here um and what i love most is that by giving the audience everything it says it wants and it does want um he sort of saves the the greatest hit for the very last thing in the movie. Like it is, it really is this wonderful. I've always described it as it's a film that takes 39 lashes to Hollywood and saves the 40th for the audience. (laughs) And if you, if you don't appreciate that, then well, this movie's not for you. This movie, this movie is everything that Michael Haneke's funny games wants to be like this. This is the, you're involved in this. This is partly your fault. (laughs) <laughs> it's just way smarter about telling you that instead of just shouting it at you, which is what Funny Games does. Well, why don't we talk about what the story is about for those who might not have seen the player? Fair. And Perry, why don't you take that? The player stars Tim Robbins as Griffin Mill, a Hollywood executive uh, uh, who is a, a big wig, not the head of the studio, but a big wig at a, at a major studio who, as we meet him, uh, is pretty much the... Uh, he's a big man on campus. He's not running things, but he is the guy young and in charge uh, who has the power to greenlight whoever he wants. He has a relationship going with one of the uh, develop, the head of development, one of the development women on staff. Uh, he is, uh, but there's, there's, there are bad things in Griffin's world. There are, there are postcards coming. <laughs> there are very threatening postcards coming. Uh, for, he believes eventually from a writer that he has uh, not gotten back to when he said he would because writers, there are a lot of writers in this movie and none of them get any respect. <laughs> none, none of them get any respect. Uh, and so he tracks down this writer and uh, ends up ends up killing him. I'm using that word purposefully. I don't want to say murders him, but kills him. That's fair. Uh, And then it is uh, a a nice, I mean, the easiest phrase to use is Hitchcockian, but it's not Hitchcock. Uh, It is about him living with having done this and can he get away with it? Does he want to get away with it? how does he continue when he feels like his world is spiraling away from him? Because now there's political intrigue at the studio and maybe Griffin's out. Uh, <laughs> it is such a, I, I, this is the pop culture I grew up in. Like, this is what mm-hmm. I remember. This is what the nineties, the late eighties, the early nineties looked like, sounded like, and was worried about. These are yuppies, <laughs> pure yuppies as I remember them growing up. Uh, one of the reasons I've always loved the movie is it's a giant takedown of yuppies. Uh, and it is, uh, it is, it, it is, it's, it's so Altman-esque. I mean, there's no doubt this is an Altman film, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with it. But it is very different from those 70s films. It, it is not, it is cold and sleek, where those other films were really naturalistic. You know, and, and not that it's 
not, and it, I want to be clear, it's not like it's super stylish and slick. It's just way more slick than those movies. And it's supposed to be. And this is a good thing to talk about because I think this maintains over his great films that are coming. The late period Alton masterpieces are all a bit more controlled. They are a bit more, He's he's got stuff he wants to say now. He's not interested in just giving you this world and something to think about. He's got something he wants to say in these late movies. And I'm, I'm very intrigued for you to see these as we go along. Well, it, it's really interesting because you look at something like Nashville, which didn't even really have a script, right? It, it was, <laughs> you know, just this flowing movie where ideas kind of float out and, and you know, connect and, Maybe they don't connect. And this is, as you say, it's very focused on what it's talking about. Um, It's sometimes satire. Sometimes it's just mad. Um, One thing, one thing that uh, I noticed too, is in a lot of those early movies, uh, there was a lot of affection he had for his characters. Like you look at Nashville, not everyone in that movie is a great person, but there's, there's an affection. There's, there's a love he has for a lot of his characters really have that here uh everyone is manipulative um there's a few people who are likable <laughs> and i would oddly enough griffin mill isn't even presented as the worst thing that could happen to hollywood because no you have you have um peter gallagher coming in who <laughs> you know today he would be like all over let's just get ai on this script right now let's uh <laughs> yes you know yes um and, and i love the fact but you know Griffin, it's weird. There's like Tim Robbins has has a quality where I want to sympathize with him. Like he can, <laughs> like he can switch from um, very vulnerable to very smug in, in oh like, yeah in a second. And you know, it, it's very interesting because there's a part of this movie where you're like, oh my gosh, I I want him to get through this. I want him to wrestle with this. But then you also realize. The, the fact that he might lose his job has equal or more weight than the fact that he was responsible for the death of a writer. <laughs> yes. Yes. A very, very expendable writer. Yes. Or Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> all writers are expendable. D'Onofrio is fantastic in this too. I, I'm always happy to see Vincent D'Onofrio on screen. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very true. Like it is, uh, uh, he has populated the film with people he doesn't like. And the people who are sympathetic and likable, uh, it doesn't turn out well for them. <laughs> no, there is there is a there is an angel of goodness in the movie, and that character is destroyed by the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even uh, it, it is great because even the writers aren't great. Like there's so there there are there are no victims per se. Uh, there are only people who have. Uh, chosen to play in this world and are either unable to see or incapable of dealing with the consequences of doing so <laughs> yeah that is its harshest statement about the world by by the final sequence in this movie pretty much everyone except the one character you're talking about who gets you know destroyed everyone has just been tainted like even the noble writer who was don't put <laughs> stars in my movies don't don't give it a happy ending. He's like, did you see the test screenings on this? And Richard E. Grant crushing it. Oh. So good. So yeah, good it, in this. Um, whatever the hell Lyle Lovett is doing in this movie. So good. Oh, that brief so period of time funny. when Lyle Lovett was in the movies, gotta miss it. <laughs> <laughs> Love Lyle Lovett in the movie. Uh Whoopi Goldberg, who like I, I feel like growing up, I never appreciated that Whoopi Goldberg was actually a good actor. Very much um, so. You know, because I was seeing her in kids' movies, like Sister Act and stuff, which, whatever, I, I seem to recall liking Sister Act. Yes. But between this, just like last year, I saw her, or two years ago, I saw her in Color Purple for the first time. She was really good. She's a good actress. And it, oh, it's, very. it's delightful to see her show up in some of these older movies. Um, but also just the constant parade of people playing themselves, which never gets old. Like there's no. one part where they're at the commissary and John Cusack is just hanging around in the background. <laughs> well, yes. And you know, that's there because Tim Robbins called him in. There's so <laughs> many. I, I, I love the, the cameos. You can tell are there because they love Altman and you can tell the ones that Robbins got. 
<laughs> said, come do this. Come just show for a minute. Cause he had, he had keys that go way, way back. And so that's, that's, that's fun for me. That's, that's a nice insidery thing to do, but uh, it's, it's, it's arguably one of the three best performances of Burt Reynolds career. <laughs> I'm not joking. He's fantastic yeah. playing himself he, in this. He's really good. I, I read a piece of trivia on there that he, uh, he didn't even know what the script was about, didn't know what the movie was about, but knew that he had to refer to everyone as an asshole. He just <laughs> instinctively knew that because that is how Burt Reynolds uh, got around world. in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, um, that's good. That's good. I, well, it's really interesting, too, to watch this in the context of where we've been with Altman and knowing that 12-ish years before this was Popeye, which was mm-hmm. his, you know, a big studio movie that he really got burned on um and and i think we would both say popeye is not you know his greatest movie but i think we'd also say it's not the uh trash heap everyone gives it credit for right um but so he does take like this whole decade where he's gonna go away from doing anything big or that he can't have this complete control over and then comes back with just an angry movie about the people who you know kind of did this to him and hollywood <laughs> loves it like what the hell and it's an indie let's be clear I yeah, mean, it's, it's, yeah it's, it's not, not a, a it's, it's not a studio movie it's back when there were actual indies that had a budget in, the, in this country yes and so uh, yeah and it, it set him up for the next 10 years over 15 i forget how long till prairie home companion 2008 i think i want to say he's he's home free after this he's working with the biggest stars again uh mm-hmm. granted doing it his own way he's not he's he's not doing anything uh he doesn't want to do uh and they're not all great but there are again another at least three great movies and probably at least another two or three really good ones over the next 17 years it's one of the rare he had a genuine third act mm-hmm. it doesn't happen often <laughs> His 80s, his his woodshedding 80s where he was directing plays on film really paid off for him. I think he learned to really consolidate his skills with actors, which shows off here. Um, he understood what he wanted to do, uh, what he wanted to say, I think is a better way to say that. Not what he wanted to do. I think he was always doing what he wanted to do with all of those movies uh, throughout the 70s. But I, you know, I don't know what Nashville has to say other than to take as clear-eyed a view as possible of the whole universe, which is just a giant thing to try to do. Um, and that's not what the player is. <laughs> it is it is a different beast, as we've been saying. It is this very calculated, uh, very funny, uh, not warm piece <laughs> about, about Hollywood and about what Hollywood uh is Hollywood that way because you want to see the world that way? <laughs> Are you so desperate to see the world this way that you will allow these horrible people to be in charge of what you see? <laughs> these are really good questions that the player has that it doesn't really ever deal with until it's over. It doesn't really confront you with this. It does not confront its audience until the very end, which I think is the really most subversive thing about it. But again, like you said, uh, like we both said, um, you'd kind of want these people in charge over what we got Uh, over what we got. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because I mean, this sets up a world where the movies kind of don't matter as long as the people are making deals. Like, like the deals matter more than the movies to the, to these people. Right. It is a, it is cash the check, get the, you know, get the right star on board climb up that ladder i mean there's a lot of like just modern day business allegory in this as well this is every business right now but i think about hollywood right now and it's you know it's the movie is a secondary product right we live in the age now where it's all about can we get the franchise going can we get the streaming it doesn't even have to be good it just has to be so it can sit on peacock or it can sit on paramount plus um yeah it it has to fit the algorithm that's all yep. it has to do yeah i'd, I'd be I, I i'm not suggesting anyone remake the player i would be very interested to see a contemporary of a version <laughs> of this that uh because i i feel like it would make the player look like oh can we just go back to that uh, 
And I want to be fair. A lot, I, you know, I, I, we're, I'm accrediting. We are accrediting this to Altman. It's there. It, that's the intention of Michael Tolkien's script and book. The book is really worth reading. And Tolkien has talked about how upset he was at how good the movie turned out because he thought the book was unfilmable when he wrote it. <laughs> he was, he was depressed that the movie was so good even though he wrote the script because he thought there's no way you can shoot this. This is all this interior, you know, monologue from this horrible character that nobody's gonna like. This isn't filmable at all. <laughs> And then Altman came to him and said, give it a shot. And so because it was Altman, he wrote it and it turned into this great movie. Uh, I like, I, I think that's very telling that even the writer of a movie about how dispensable writers are, doesn't understand his own talent. <laughs> but uh, yes. So I, I, I shout out for Michael Tolkien in the history of the player. I think he's overlooked a lot of times because this is considered Altman's great comeback. And it's a very easy story to pitch that way and a great story to tell that way. And it, it was, if you're going to tell that story and it sets up, like I said, uh, I think we're going to do shortcuts next. I think that's what comes next, uh, which is, uh, you know, in many ways, the, the easy reference is that it is Nashville part two. Uh, it's not. I don't, want to, I, don't, I don't want to oversell you on this, Chris, because I know how much you love Nashville. <laughs> it is a different beast than Nashville, but it's similar in a lot of ways. Uh and then we'll get to Gosford Park, which is the other really masterful late period film that you will. Uh, and that is what I think you will. Uh, Gosford Park is one of those things where at this point, so much of what Gosford Park was fascinating about Gosford Park and did really well has been done often by many of the same people involved in Gosford Park. <laughs> Gosford um, Park, that's the uh, kind of British class drama, correct? murder yeah murder mystery crime yes yes class class differences in britain yes which that will be an interesting one when we get there because i have such an allergy to those movies so many times um i but, I, but I, imagine I it with imagine it with an altman spin okay well i i didn't get through five minutes of downton abbey but maybe i'll get through more of this <laughs> uh one thing i did want to that that really kind of surprised me um, and, and I think helped with this movie a lot was the relationship that Griffin has with the writer's girlfriend. Yes. Um, which is something I, I found really fascinating because it does almost set you up. And maybe this was just the uh, saltines and uh, Sprite talking, but it, it almost set me up to want to see him get some sort of happiness because, you know, he's this jaded, cynical exec who doesn't really care about art he cares about the deals falls in love with this artist or i don't even know if it's love but he you know falls for this artist who makes nothing commercial uh she she is all passion and you're kind of thinking oh is this what's going to redeem him what's no it doesn't uh she's she's just as manipulative as him in many ways and by the end she's totally on board with everything he's doing um yes but i i really liked it it did kind of round him out and i don't want to say it made him more human because I don't know if anyone in this is totally human, but uh, I, I really <laughs> liked that relationship. And also, you know, on the same on the same level, I'm kind of rooting for him. On the other hand, I'm like, that is the girlfriend of the guy whose death you were responsible for, and she doesn't <laughs> seem to care about that either. No, she. This uh, yes, uh, Miss Goodman's daughter is is not a is not a good person <laughs> by all accounts. For, from everything I can, all the clues I'm picking up from this script and from this movie. Uh, no, that I think the great line is, uh, I'm not sure David really had talent. <laughs> that's, that's the telling line for me that she gets throughout the movie. The, her, her ex, her, her, her ex, well, her deceased boyfriend's uh, career was summed up as such by the woman who supposedly loved him. Uh, <laughs> and the sad part is she might very well be right about that in this world. Uh, I, one thing I thought was really funny was uh, when I was looking back at articles written about this, and this was just one written, I think maybe last year or five years ago for one of the anniversaries. Um, it, all the different types of designer water that are ordered yes. out this movie and that it's all there because it was all the product placement they could get was all these uh, designer waters until at the end, there's one that doesn't really exist because they were out of sponsors and just had to make one up. <laughs> That's genius. That's that's really good satire in and of itself. <laughs> if, you, if you know your bottled waters, that's a pretty great joke to pull off then. 
I, I'm really surprised. Like, I don't know if I if I should be surprised because Hollywood just loves movies about itself, but it feels surprising that this was embraced so much by Hollywood when it's also like condemning Hollywood. It yes and no. I mean, this is it. Uh, look, you know what you're getting with Altman. Right. Altman was above all else an iconoclast, right? He was not about pampering the people in charge. And so, you know, like, you know, like being insulted by a really good insult comic, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's probably a point of pride. I'm sure there are people around Hollywood who are bragging that Griffin Mill was based on them. You know, <laughs> let's, let's face it. The objects of the objects of satire rarely see the satire about them. <laughs> You know, they, they can't accept that. So I, I'm I'm, I'm kind of okay with that, actually. I think it would almost be, it would almost be too good if Hollywood rejected this movie. It would be, because like I said, they're also savvy enough. Alban gives them an out, you know, with that ending that clearly says the audience is the problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is clear. That is what the end of that movie means. But y'all There's no happy doubt. Ending. Well, yeah, the fact that you, uh, you know, it's expecting that you are, I mean, it's, Spoiler for a 30-year-old movie. Um, <laughs> you know, you're at that point where you're kind of like, oh, oh, yeah, he's getting away with it. This is great. But you're he shouldn't get away with it. And, no. And it's the very thing the movie's been preaching about is your desire for a happy ending. And it gives you, it, 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 it's a combination punch at the end because it is the twist on the movie that they have been filming. Mm-hmm. You know, you get that ending and then you get the ending of the player. It's like, Wow, you are you've you've taken a lot on Hollywood, but you saved that last punch for me. Roxanne is right in the nose. Good on you. I'm happy to take that punch. You're not wrong. <laughs> this was also a pretty big, uh, like mainstream hit too. Yes, absolutely. Which, again, something that I don't know that we would see that today. Uh, it it that was surprising too because it feels. There's a part that feels very inside baseball because it's very inside baseball, but that was also the time when the whole world was kind of inside baseball on movies, right? Like this is what was going, what you were reading about in Premiere and Entertainment Weekly. Right. Like you were saying, Premiere Entertainment Weekly, this is the beginning of when box office numbers were published. Like everybody knew, yes, Hollywood lifted the curtain during this period in a lot of ways. Uh and that's that's it feels right it's it is it is very much of its period now which it felt it felt timeless at the time and it is its themes are for sure but yeah it is weird to see this again and see how much of a 90s movie it is not just the cast but in uh those those suits <laughs> so, oh my god those nightmare you know just everything was so big culture generation removed from wall street suits <laughs> and 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 uh, you know, the only thing missing from this movie is is uh, uh, the phrase synergy, right? He's, <laughs> he's good enough not to waste using that word again. You know, it was probably already tired by 92, but that's all I can think of while watching this is it's just so it's it's so angry and so funny. I mean, it's always funny and it's even funnier if you know movies. There are a lot of very sly, very affectionate movie jokes throughout this thing. Uh, and many of them right on the nose. Even if you don't know movies, you'll realize, oh, that's why that poster's there. And it's and he does it so much, it works. It is a it is a motif. It's not like, oh, that's cute, and you did that once, and that doesn't work. He's just it's the entire style of the movie. He has perfectly orchestrated this movie for it to pay off the way it does. Is it also the best Bruce Willis performance ever? No, <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. It's half, the funniest Bruce Willis. Half appearance. joking. But I, it's the funniest Bruce Willis appearance in any movie. But no, it's not the it's not the best performance. It is I, it is great that he was willing to send himself up like this. Yeah, I, I'm half joking on that because I actually there's a lot of Bruce Willis performances I actually dig. There's but, three, uh, but he's so, <laughs> three. I dig. He's so aware of his identity, like that. He's he plays with it. He allows himself to play with it, and I don't think Bruce Willis would do that 20 years later. Uh, uh, not like that. Not, but then li- again, not exactly like that. Then again, now I'm thinking back to it was only maybe 20 years after this movie that him and Julia Roberts cameoed as themselves in Ocean's 12. Yes. Oh, yeah. Which is doing it for the very same reasons. Well, not the very same reasons, but very similar reasons, truth be told. 
uh, yeah, it is. It is a great joke. And what I what I love best about it, and loved at the time, and it still holds true, is that sequence of the movie within the movie, with one exception, everybody in that is playing it straight. Like that's how that would go. Yeah. Uh, and and Willis and Roberts are just exquisite in it. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly how you would play that at that point. That's exactly how Julia Roberts would have played that part, especially in 1991. And that is very much what Bruce Willis was doing in 1991-92. And I could envision a John Grisham movie coming out in the 90s with that ending. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Like, I'm surprised we didn't get that movie. Oh, for sure. Which, to be fair, Michael Tolkien did say someone actually pitched him to buy the rights for habeas corpus. Oh, I'm sure he did. You know, the greatest joke about what was that? What was the movie identity was that the movie set in the motel with the yes, sort with- of all-star cast and you watch the movie and everything you realize oh they made the three they made the script from adaptation that's all that is <laughs> that's, that's what i'm thinking they should have done with habeas corpus yes and i'm shocked tolkien didn't sell them the rights that would have been the best joke possible <laughs> tolkien should have just sold them the rights for a gross amount of money and walked away do we have anything else to say about the player See it if you've never seen yeah. it. Oh my gosh! Even with everything we've told you, we're not spoiling anything. Like it is, it is a really good, really funny, really smart movie. Uh, boy, I wish Altman was still alive. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it really it like it does feel sometimes some of these movies. The only review we could give for it is like go see it, um, because even everything we're saying is not gonna. It, it's not gonna get across how tight this is, how funny it is. Um, but I, I really enjoyed this. It it Good. didn't let me down. I think the only thing that happened was I expected it to be the height of all my uh, of the Altman films, and I did not expect to love those seventies movies as much as I did. Yeah, you, you, you I, knowing you as well as I do, nothing nothing will top those. But there's a couple that I think are gonna are gonna worm their way into you in ways you don't expect <laughs> that we have coming. I am looking forward to that. That will wind its way throughout our year. I don't know what we're talking about next. We're going to talk about it once we get off this call. Um, but uh, I look forward to getting to, you said shortcuts is next, correct? Yeah. In the series? Yeah, I think we should do shortcuts for sure. So we'll make sure that that's coming in the next few months. Harry, in the meantime, though, where can people find you? You can hear me right here. You can find me on Facebook. You can hear me often at Cathode Ray Mission, an excellent show on the internet. Uh, And, you know, as always, you'll hear me gasping and screaming with joy on Tuesday at the Oscar nominations, wherever you are. You can hear me around the world at that point. And you can find me on Twitter at Mere Christianity. You can subscribe to my newsletter at criticisms.substack.com. I have some fun stuff I'm uh, looking to do this year. And you can read my reviews of new releases at Cinema Nerds with a Z. Uh, my two most recent ones are Sick, which is a slasher movie set during COVID that is much better than that sentence probably makes you think. <laughs> And when you finish saving the world, which is Jesse Eisenberg's directorial debut. I really like Julianne Moore in it. I really like Finn Wolfhard in it. It's just too bad that they have a Jesse Eisenberg script in that. Published New Yorker author, Jesse Eisenberg. Come on. (laughs) It's not awful. It's just there. Gotcha. So we will be back in a few weeks. Until then, Perry, I'll see you. Take care, Chris.